content, and I'm not going to do a YouTube video on how to make milk talk. That's for supporting members. I try to put as much value there as I can. That's what I did. I will warn you on the Biltong video. It's in three phases. Uh, phase three never happened because it was basically this is what finished Biltong looks like. Um, and before I got a chance to shoot the final video, I ate the Biltong. So um, someday I'll do a phase three. But really, the videos that are there are very uh, complete in telling you how to do the process. So that knocks things out. Let's get into the main topic today. Uh, which, again, is saving seeds and dealing with plants kind of at the end of their life cycle. Let's start out with why we need to be saving seeds anyway. I think a lot of preppers are, are pretty quick to point out, well, if you can save seed, uh, then you save money because I don't have to buy new seeds every year, and I'm also self-sufficient, self-reliant in, in that way. If I can get a, at least the majority of my crops to a point where each year I'm reserving seed from them, or every other year I'm reserving seed from certain varieties, and I cannot buy seeds at all, then I know that I can continue to produce food for myself season after season after season without having to rely on stores. So if that ever becomes unavailable, I have the ability to produce for myself. And if I, if I save seeds, the other thing I can do is I can build up this large reserve, way more seed than I ever need. Maybe I'll exchange some of it. We'll talk about that in a minute, including a new seed, a seed exchange that I'm going to ask you guys to help me get off the ground uh, for a good buddy, Johnny Max, over at Self-Sufficient Homestead Podcast. Um, but uh, it's, it's deeper than this. It's deeper just than the value of the seed as a commodity. It's deeper than the value of the self-reliance because we have the seed in the first place. It's, um, it's, it's a hell of a lot deeper than that. It's because if we don't do it, who will? The big agricultural companies out there have no interest in preserving genetic diversity. They've been on a maniac's run for 100 years destroying genetic diversity. If I handed you a dollar bill uh, in 1900 and said this represents all of the seeds that are available to anyone anywhere in the world for growing vegetables and, and plants and herbs and, and everything. This one dollar bill represents everything that exists in 1900. And you said, well, what would be the representation today? It would be three pennies. In about a hundred years, we've lost 97% of the genetic diversity that was available at one time. That's a lot. And I think that those numbers are better today because I think a lot of research has been done to go find these old varieties that were thought to be gone and have restored it. That number came from Jules Dervais, though, uh, so I trust that number. Jules Dervais, of course, being the gentleman in uh, Central California that grows about three tons of food on a tenth of an acre and, and works with all these rare varieties of seed. And that number is from a few years ago at a lecture he did at UCLA. So I, just looking at all of these new heirloom varieties I think keep seeing being added to these catalogs, feel that we've maybe improved that. But if it's a dime, if it's a quarter, folks, it's, it's, it's too much lost. And the only way to stop the loss is for people everywhere to each do a little bit. There's great organizations out there. There's, you know, um, High Mowing Organic Seed has some amazing heirloom uh, vegetables that are available from them. Uh, Seed Savers Exchange, Seeds of Change, 
there's uh, Baker Creek. They're just amazing what's out there. And these bigger companies, uh, and they're not big companies, they're all small businesses, but these bigger companies are doing a lot to help. And I'm glad that we have them because they have resources that the backyard grower never will. But in many instances, they're using backyard growers for their seeds. They'll find a guy that says, and the only thing I grow is black crim tomatoes. And, you know, I grow hundreds of them every year, and that guy will sell them seed. And as long as they know his seed is pure, he's their customer. So it is backyard growers. Even when you see these companies like Baker Creek and, and some other places, it's backyard and small growers that are in large part providing these seed crops. For a catalog like uh, Baker Creek to exist, for exa- example, if you get that catalog, it's like a picture book. Get the catalog. It's free. Order it and order a couple things out of it just to support an operation like this. But if you look through it, there's no way one farm, especially with some of the things I'm going to tell you today about separation distances, could ever produce all the seeds that go into that catalog by themselves. I don't care if they have a 1,000 acres. You don't have enough room to keep things separated and enough manpower to, to churn things out. There has to be some supplementation. So even that goes down to the backyard grower. But where it really takes off, and this is what's made Seed Savers Exchange so powerful, is in that organization there's 5,000 members. Me being one, I recommend if you can afford it, you become a member and support that work too. But 5,000 members um, out there growing seed and swapping seeds. And they send you this great big book, and now they have it online, and you can go through and see what people have, and you can buy them or contact them and say, hey, I have something that you want to, you know. And the big thing about that I love about them is there are seeds that are re- really rare, and the people that are producing them will only provide them to people with a reoffer pledge. And what that means is, yeah, I'll give you 50 seeds of this particular variety of plant, but I'll only do it if you're already offering seeds, and if you pledge that when you get a seed crop, you'll start reoffering to get this plant back out into existence and to spread it. <coughs> and I think that is really, really awesome. I'll talk about a new seed exchange here in a second, but I just wanted you to first understand what we're losing and how I don't think as a society uh, we can afford to lose any more than we've already lost. 97 cents on the dollar is too much. And like I said, if it's gotten better in the last few years since Jules gave his talk, if it's a dime, if it's a quarter, it's still too much. And that's too many things that are just gone. And what we need to do now is make sure that we're preserving these things. And you do get all the other things that I talked about, Adam. You get a commodity. You get self-sufficiency. You get self-reliance. You save money. And above all, this stuff's fun. Eventually, you end up with a better product, too. We'll talk about that. Um, But let's, for a minute, before we get deep into this subject, talk about an area that I think a uh, a lot of people out there have confusion with. And this is, what is heirloom? What is open pollinated? What is hybrid? And what is genetically modified? They're all sort of different except for heirloom and open pollinated have a lot of crossover. So let's start out with what an air. Well, let's talk about what an open pollinated seed. Open pollinated seed is any plant that pollinates itself uh, w- without having to have any kind of special manipulation done to it. Let's just call it that. Some plants are self-fertile. Uh, peppers, for instance, have perfect flowers. So you can grow one pepper plant and it'll have fertile seed. It doesn't need another plant. Now, you're better off with additional plants and getting some genetic diversity out of your peppers and what have you, but 
peppers are self-fertile, so but they're still open-pollinated. And what I mean by that is they when you when you're done with the plant and you pull the seed out of it it will be fertile as long as you've observed certain rules and it will reproduce an exact copy of its parent or a similar plant to its its parent it will be the same strain okay a heirloom is generally an open pollinated plant but it's a line of seed so it might be a california wonder pepper right which is an open pollinated uh generally considered an heirloom pepper but if it's my California Wonder Peppers that I've been growing here for five years, they start down that heirloom path. But if it was my grandfather's California pepper seeds that he started growing in 19, what, 1935 or so, and were grown in Pennsylvania all the way up till now, and you had those seeds, even though they're California Wonder Pepper seeds, they're different than the one you would get out of a catalog. They would be specifically adapted to kind of the coal region area of Pennsylvania. So heirlooms are something that, I think it's misunderstood a lot as well. If it's an heirloom, obviously it's a good seed. Well, if it's an heirloom, it, it, it has to have come from somewhere. There has to be a story that goes with it. And those lines start to split and bicurferate uh, here and there and everywhere to a point where um, you might have rattlesnake pole beans, but if you've been growing them for 20 years on your property, they're not really the same heirloom. Now they're your family's heirloom. So if you have something that's handed down from one generation to the next, that's generally the definition of an heirloom. And that's more accurately what an heirloom seed variety is. We can trace it back to its origin, and we know its path of being handed down. Okay? So the two are, are often interchanged, and there's really no harm in it, but I thought it would be good that we understand them. A hybrid is not a genetically modified plant. A hybrid is not evil. A hybrid is not bad. A hybrid is a natural process where two, uh, two plants of two different varieties cross-pollinate. Sometimes the results are great. Sometimes the results are terrible. It all depends. Uh, but generally, the results are not seen until the subsequent generation. So let's say I have um, two varieties of tomato next to each other. And I take variety A and variety B. And because tomatoes generally don't cross-pollinate, uh, and it's hard to tell if they have, I manually cross-pollinate. I get a little paintbrush or a Q-tip, and I go into one, and I go into another, and I know the blossoms I've done it to, and I isolate those blossoms, and I take that tomato, and I save that seed and I plant it in the next generation. That is a cross-pollinated species. Generally, we try to avoid this. With hybridization, we do it on purpose. And often we get in that first generation something called hybrid vigor, which means stronger, bigger, tougher plant, stronger, bigger, juicier fruit. Sometimes we get a combination of cho uh, traits. If I take disease-resistant, right, and I, t I take uh, drought-tolerant species and I put them together, Sometimes my hybrid gives me high disease resistance and high drought tolerance. Sometimes it doesn't work. It's, it's not an exact process, but there's a lot of known hybridizations that work very well. The, the negative aspect of hybrids are, in general, if I take two hybrids of the same variety and they pollinate each other and it's exactly the, everything's the same, that third generation, all of the quality drops off and I get something lesser Sometimes I even get sterility. I don't even get seeds that will germinate. Sometimes I get seeds that will germinate and grow, and they'll produce another generation that's okay. But that somewhere down the line, 
because of the hybridization, I, I lose the quality of the plant, but not always. That's the other side of this. There's a, a, a widely known heirloom open pollinated tomato out there called Mortgage Lifter. Guy came up with it back in the 30s. Uh, he sold uh, the plants and the seeds, and he sold enough of them that he paid the mortgage off on his home, uh, his little farm, even though it was in the middle of the Depression. That's why they called it Mortgage Lifter. It lifted his mortgage off his back. But it was a hybrid. It was a cross between Parks Whopper and a Burpee seed line, I think. I could be wrong. I don't remember. But that's what, if you read the seed catalog, when you buy Mortgage Lifter, you see that it is this, this cross. That's the guy, he made a hybrid on purpose. So not all hybrids are bad. We just don't always know what the long-term results of that seed line are. But they don't pose a risk to us. They're not a health hazard. They're not bad. They're not genetically modified. GMO. That's the evil, in my opinion. And if you think they're okay, fine. You eat all the GMO food you want. I, I have a big problem with GMO foods. GMO isn't where two plants are crossed. It's where scientists chemically, at the molecular level, and genetically alter the seed at the DNA sequence level. And they do things like, oh, I don't know, there's, there's a particular variety of corn uh, put out by Monsanto, and... Um, it, it has a gene from a fish in the corn. Yes, a gene from a fish in the corn. Now, how do you get a fish gene into corn? Can you just, like, stick them together in a Petri dish and they'll, they'll go together? No. It's impossible. It's not designed to happen. Nature does not allow this. So what they do is they actually get a very specific virus, and they put the gene sequence into the virus, and then they use the virus to attach itself to the DNA strand, and the virus transmits the fish gene into the corn. This is Frankenstein stuff, guys. It really is. This is scary crap, and I don't like it. And a lot of the stuff that they've told us is perfectly safe to eat, we now have studies coming out where rats fed this corn have developed liver and kidney and other organ failures uh, after living on a diet of this corn for a period of time. When fed non-GMO corn in the same amounts and quantities, it didn't happen. And we don't know what the long-term effects are. And here's the big problem I have with GMOs. If you want to eat cyanide, right, go ahead, join Jim Jones and go off into the netherworld. I believe in individual liberty. My problem is that GMOs actually get in the way of individual liberty because if I want to grow something without genetically modified uh, uh, DNA in it in my yard and somebody else next to me is growing something with genetic modification in it, that GMO trait can be passed through cross-pollination of my plants and I don't even know about it. The good news is that most of the things that are genetically modified today are the big food products. So your backyard, you don't have that much to worry about except corn. Corn's the tough one, right? And it really is. It, to where the seed producers themselves are having to do very expensive genetic testing just to ensure purity, and some very isolated corn stands are still getting some of these GMO traits into them. So, and that's my issue. That's my big issue with GMOs, that we can't control them once we set them loose. Pollen flies through the air. It's carried on the legs of pollinating insects. That's a good thing as long as we leave nature alone. So, but I just want to make sure that when you hear hybrid, you don't freak out. You don't equate that to GMO. The problem with hybrids are saving seeds becomes difficult with most hybrid varieties. Not all, but most. 
We're saving seeds with an heirloom, open pollinated seed. It's very easy to do as long as you obey some rules. If you're going to start out with seeds, well, let's talk about exchanging seeds as well. So you have your seeds, or you need seeds. Where do you get them? Well, you can go to all these great places and buy them. Or Johnny Max, good buddy of mine, had me on his show when he used to do about uh, uh, beer and brewing and things like that. His show, Brew Crazy. Well, he's got a new show. I guess it's not new anymore. It's been going on for about a year almost. But it's called uh, Self-Sufficient Homestead. It's at sshomestead.com. Well, he put together a site because he, he said that somewhere around 10 to 20% of his listeners are currently dealing with a problem known as unemployment right now. And, you know, Seed Savers Exchange is 40 bucks, and 40 bucks buys a lot of seeds. And that's just for a membership, so you can swap and buy seeds from, you know, the members. Of course, you can buy seeds directly from them as well, and they are somewhat affordable. But what he wanted to do was create a place where people could swap and exchange seeds for free. And I know there's forums and some stuff like that, but what he did is he put together a dedicated site for it, and it is called, let me, I don't want to say the domain wrong, HeirloomSeedSwap.com. Now, I'd like everybody out there that saves seeds already or has any interest in, in getting seeds from somebody else to help get this site off the ground. I don't ask my audience to go out and support other people very often. I'm asking you to do this today. It's www.HeirloomSeedSwap.com. There will be a link in today's show notes. Go there, set up an account. If you have any stockpile of seeds, List them with an ad for exchange. Now, here's something I did today. Now, if my ad's not showing up yet. I guess he's got it probably on moderate, so he has to approve the ads. Uh, but I listed an ad. It was very easy to do. And I listed it to exchange some of my seeds from my Magenta Magic Orange. And um, I put in there that I will take $2 for 20 seeds of, of this particular plant, or I'll take one silver dime. <laughs> and, and that's another form of barter. Or I was looking for any uh, variety of bean seed, any heirloom bean seeds. I'll take in exchange for 20 seeds, and I'd be willing to do more, right? So I put. So what I'm saying is, in your in your listing, be a little bit descriptive. Now I don't know, Johnny may not want us exchanging silver dimes uh, across this exchange, but see, to me, barter is barter. If I'll if I'll barter some of my orange seed with you. Uh, for some uh, Jacob's Cattle beans or something like that, which, by the way, I'd like, uh, or rattlesnake beans. I'd like either one of those in return for my orange. Um, then it, if I take a, a silver dime, and the way I came to a silver dime was I went and plugged uh, one silver dime into the coinflation calculator, and it came out to be worth a buck twenty. And I said, a buck twenty for for uh, 20 seeds. And then I, what I decided is, well, I'd rather have your silver dime than, than your two bucks. So, um, and I would rather have beans than your two bucks. So I made it an incentive to, if you don't have any seeds to swap with me, it's cheaper to send me a silver dime. And I can just throw that in my little pile of silver and continue. And I'm a big believer in barter. So I'm going to try to push that into his uh, network, whether he wants it or not. But do get over to his site. Do set up an account. It's really easy to do. And... Uh, He's only got like six or seven ads floating around there now, folks. Let's get some listings on there for him. Because the problem is when you take a site like this for exchanging seeds, and initially it only has a few things on it, then when people get to it, they go, there's not much here. Well, it requires, you know, audience participation, so to speak, on a site like that. So I'm asking you. 
do this as, as a favor for me. Get over there, set up an account, and list at least list at least one thing that you'd be willing to barter for. And Johnny came up with an interesting thing. A lot of times people have like hardware stores and things like that around them where they have a certain seed that you can go in and buy like a pound of it for like ten bucks or something, you know, or a, a couple ounces of it or whatever. And it's kind of a unique seed strain that's unique to the area. Well, if you don't have any seeds from saving them, maybe you go out and collect some like that and put them into the barter network because they're still unique. doesn't matter that you didn't save them. They're still unique. All right. So, again, do me that favor. Let's move on from there. If you're going to save seeds, kind of the, 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 the four easiest plants to save seeds from are beans, lettuce, peppers, and tomatoes. Uh, beans are really easy. You just basically leave beans on the plant longer than you normally would, and when they start to turn brown and get hard, and the beans are dried out, just like you would use them for shell beans for making soup or what have you, or baking, uh, you pick them and put the seeds away, and you plant them next year. Um, with Asian long beans last year, I wasn't even saving the seeds. I would let maybe one out of ten of those huge yard-long beans just keep going until it was brown. And when it dried out, I would crush it open, pull, you know, eight little seeds out, and stick them in the ground right next to the growing plants. And I had fourth-generation plant growth. So I went through four generations, and I got a long growing season, but I went through four generations in one season, which meant those seeds continued to adapt. And by... Picking the best-looking long bean, I was able to get a lot of trait passed on just in one season. It's amazing how fast you can do these things with, with things that grow fast like beans, especially some of the Asian varieties of beans. Lettuce is, uh, is pretty easy. Uh, you just basically, you know, the big problem with lettuce is generally that it will go to seed on you. In other words, it will do what they call bolt. Uh, as it starts to get warm, like right now, a beautiful lettuce in my garden. Another month or two, it's going to be hard to keep any of it there because it's going to expend a lot of energy and it's going to be ready to pass on and, and go to the kind of, you know, return to the earth and it's going to send up a big seed stock. So you wait for that seed stock to come up. Now here's the thing. Lettuce can cross pollinate. It's wind pollinated. So if you're growing multiple varieties of lettuce, it's really a good idea to only let certain ones go to seed in a given year or at a given time. So if you have a lettuce that can handle heat a little bit better, you might want to, that seed stock starts to come up, whack it off. And uh, let an earlier variety go ahead and go to seed, harvest its seed, and then let that second variety go to seed. That's one way to do things. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Peppers, peppers are simple. You, you basically let the pepper get to the point where uh, it's ready to eat, it's really fully ripened, and you, you cut it open and pull the seeds out. It's, it's that simple. You let them dry, and you put them away. Tomatoes are a little bit more involved uh, to do it right. Now, uh, I heard Johnny on his show, uh, I listened to his latest show yesterday, and he said when he was a kid they would just leave a couple tomatoes, just fall off the vine, and set them somewhere and let them turn them, sit outside and completely turn to mush and you know wait till springtime when they were ready to plant and just go pick them up off the ground and pull the seeds out of them. Um, so the way it happens in nature uh, but the general way that you, you get tomato seeds is you kind of open your tomato up and you push all the seeds and the pulp into a jar. You do that with, uh, with uh, a couple tomatoes off different plants. You want diversity in your seed stock, so don't pull them all from one plant. Fill that with water, and it'll actually start to ferment and grow kind of a mold on the surface, and that's fine. And eventually what you'll see is kind of the scum on the surface of the jar. You want to cover this with like uh, a cloth with a string or a rubber band. And then the seeds will be at the bottom, and the water will be clear in between the two of them. 
you pour that slowly off the top, and then basically you just put your seeds into a, a colander that's thin enough they won't go through it, and rinse them off really well. And uh, you might want to fill them with water a few times because your dead seeds will float and your live seeds will sink, right? And those, I mean, that's, that's the, the four easy ones. But one thing we have to be mindful of is what they call separation rules. We have to keep them separated like the song goes. And I think that some people stress over this too much. It, it, it depends on what you're doing. If I'm going to be growing... Um, a specific type of seed, and I'm going to be putting it, selling it to a catalog supplier, and I'm going to be guaranteeing that it's a pure rattlesnake snap bean, then I really have to obey these rules of separation. If I am a backyard grower, and I do my best, and a little bit of cross-pollination happens, but I'm following the other rules, like I'm not saving seeds just from one bean vine, I'm saving seeds from all the bean vines, and I'm coming up with a seed crop that's maybe 10% of my total crop every year, and I, and I have a little bit of mixing going on in it, that's natural, folks. Happens in nature every day. I mean, if you think about something in the wild that we generally would consider a wild-crafted uh, edible plant, like lamb's quarters, there's many varieties of lamb's quarters out there, and they have a very light pollen that pollinates for miles in the wind. Don't you think that the wild lamb's quarter that we look at today has quite a few different things going on inside of it? And that there's even a big difference between uh, lamb's quarters harvested in Alabama versus lamb's quarters harvested in Texas? So a little bit of that's not bad, especially with certain plants. Now, there's other plants that are considered a bit more advanced and require a little bit more thought because the results can be, well, kind of nasty. And these are usually... Uh, melons, squashes, uh, those are the, and cucumbers. Those are the ones that you can get some weird things going on with, and it's it's more because they're bee pollinated. So bees will travel up to a mile, right? So and and squashes and melons are and cucumbers are popular plants to grow. So what happens is a bee goes into one variety of winter squash, let's say butternut. And then he cruises over to another blossom on, uh, let's say, a, a Hubbard squash. And now they've got a cross-pollination going on. Well, that year, the Hubbard squash is going to produce a Hubbard, whether it's a little you know, orange Hubbard or a great big giant blue Hubbard or whatever. It's not going to look any different. You won't ever know that it happened. But if you cut it open and pull those seeds out and put them in the ground, that generation is going to be a hybrid, Right? That generation is going to be the one that you don't know what you're going to get. And with squashes, you can get some bitter, kind of nasty results that way. So how do you pollinate a squash or a cucumber or a melon? Well, squash, cucumbers, melons, cucurbits, all of these things have male and female flowers. And they're really easy to identify. Because you'll look at the blossom before it opens, and you'll see a little cucumber or a little baby squash behind it. That's a female. And then you'll see other blossoms that don't have anything behind them at all. They're just straight back to the plant, like a regular flower. That's a male flower. So what you do is you watch that female flower, and it will only be what's called receptive for about 24 to 48 hours anyway. So when it looks like it's just about to open, go out with a Q-tip or a paintbrush and open it up manually. Go into a known male from the same variety, preferably a different plant, though, to get some diversity going on, and you can either use the paintbrush to try to pick up some pollen. What I've always done, and what the guy on Johnny's show said he's done as well, is I just pull a male, or, male flower or two off of a couple plants that look healthy, and I take the male plant and I just push the two together. 
And I rub the, the, the contact points of the pollen on, on both, and I'll usually use two males to one female. And then he said you can tape the blossoms shut, which is probably easier than what I've always done. I've always taken a small little paper sack, put it over there, and taped it on, and waited for a day or two, and take it off. And by then the flower, the female flower, has been pollinated, and it dies and it falls off. You remove the sack, and then you mark that squash or that cucumber or whatever somehow. Usually what I do is I take a, uh, a piece of, uh, like, uh, parachute cord and tie it very loosely, uh, but with a double knot so it won't come off, on the vine holding that particular plant. That way I don't confuse it. I know that's my plant to save for seed. Pretty simple. It's way easier than it sounds, right? I mean, it's just basically there's the flower, open it up, jam it together, cover it somehow, and taping it, I'm going to try that this year when I do it again. Uh, with my trombone zucchinis. Um, I, it, it just makes perfect sense to me now to just push the flower back together and put some, you know, maybe some masking tape or something over it so that no bees can get in there and, and ruin it with cross-pollination. But generally speaking, vegetables um, and, and all plants, when you look at saving seeds, when they rank them from, like, beginner to expert, the more separation required and the more steps involved, the more of an expert they say you need to be to do it. But none of it's really to me about difficulty. It's just about knowing the rules and following them. And there's a great website called uh, International Seed Savers uh, Institute, or the International Seed Saving Institute, that has rules for every, every common vegetable out there. So as long as you follow those rules, no problems at all. Now, there's some plants that you have to know certain things about, or you're never going to get an opportunity to save seeds. I've talked to people that are like, I don't know where beet seeds come from. Well, what do you mean? Well, they come from beets, right? And they're like, well, yeah, but I've let beets just grow and grow and grow and grow. I've never seen a seed on them. Same thing with Swiss chard. I've heard the same thing about that. Here's the deal. Swiss chard and beets don't seed in their first year. Swiss chard and beets are perennials. At least they are in areas where it doesn't get too cold and they don't die on the ground. They come back next year. And the second year, they produce a flower head and seeds. So that's considered a more difficult plant, but what's so difficult about it? In fact, I'll tell you a secret. I always leave some beets in the ground anyway. I love the leaves that come up on the beet on the second year versus the first year. The first year, you get those big, long, giant leaves. And if you pick them when they're young, they're small and all. But you, you know what I mean. You get those big leaves, right? The second year, a beet, and I'll see if I can take a picture of this today. Maybe I'll post it for you guys or throw a little YouTube video together if I get some time today. But when a bee is left in the ground, and, and what they tell you to do at the Seed Savers Institute is to pull them out of the ground and keep them cool and dry and plant the roots back the next spring. If you live in a mild climate, you just mulch the hell out of it and, and, and take it through. And that's what I've done. I've never pulled beets out of the ground here in Texas. Never had to. Well, the second year, the leaves that grow on them are these little tiny leaves, and they grow a whole lot more of them. And they have kind of a salty uh, and, and juicy taste, and they're great in salad. So I don't leave them in the ground just so I can get seed out of them. I leave them in the ground because I don't have to plant them next year. And because the leaf product that they produce, the green product they produce, I actually find better in the second year. And I kind of agree with chart. It's not quite as pronounced of a smaller, uh, tastier leaf, but it's, 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 it's an improvement to me. And if you live in mild climates, both beets and chard, you can just mulch them really heavy and uh, kind of, you know, take your production into the second year and turn what people think of as an annual into a perennial.
One more thing on, like, keeping plants separated for pollination and isolated before we move on to kind of the next portion of what we're going to talk about today. It, it doesn't have to always be a hard, fast rule. Like, you'll read on the Seed Savers Institute, there are some plants that will say it's recommended that they be at least 100 feet apart. But if you kept those plants 50 feet apart and had them in two different beds, and in between them had another bed with a tall plant uh, with a lot of flowers that would be very attractive to pollinating insects, it kind of acts as a screen, and it will reduce cross-pollination. And you'll also find that a lot of plants that have separation rules generally don't cross-pollinate anyway. So unless you're after absolute purity and guaranteed purity, it's not necessary. Beans, tomatoes, and peppers among them. They don't cross-pollinate very much at all, even if they're planted right next to each other. And you can always go to a manual pollination process and an isolation process if you want to. Another thing that's very simple to do is build a, anything that's got perfect flowers, like a pepper, which means it's self-fertile, is once the plant gets to where it's starting to blossom, build a little screen box, put a screen box over it so that no pollinating insects can get to that plant, let a few fruits set, mark those fruits somehow, and use those as the fruit that you select uh, for your seed harvesting. So there's a lot of things you can do other than true separation. And just keep your mind open to that. And again, don't stress over it. One last thing you can do is what's called staggering. So if I'm going to plant two varieties of winter squash, it's generally a big risk if they're near each other for cross-pollination. But if I plant one and I wait a month to plant the second one, when the first one is really in blossom and setting, setting fruit, the other one's not. And then toward what I can do is once the, 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 the second one comes into fruition, if the, if the first one is setting any blossoms, I can just go out there every day and lob them off. And I can do my manual pollination. And once I get some fruit set on the second variety, I can go ahead and let things go as long as I mark the fruits that I want to save for harvest. So none of this stuff's really that hard. There's always a way, and you can always stagger something if you want to ensure a little bit more purity. But I actually believe that if you're going to be growing the same stuff in your backyard all the time, a little bit of cross-pollination also helps to um, kind of beef up the the regional traits in your plants. You know, the things that make your tomatoes better adapted to Georgia's climate and my tomatoes better adapted to Texas's climate because that's something that's actually pretty easy to do. I also think that we overlook some of the easiest plants to save seed for. Um, and those are herbs and the unusual edibles. Uh, orach I mentioned today. I have some of my seeds up for exchange on that. All I did for my orach was I picked a plant, or two, actually picked two plants, and said, I'm going to let these plants grow and see what happens to them. Um, instead of having these little plants that were a couple feet tall that I was cutting leaves off until they basically died, I eventually just going, okay, I'm going to whack that plant and plant some more. I ended up with a plant that was about eye level to me, about five feet tall. And it was really beautiful until it died and turned brown. But it was gorgeous with this magenta red everywhere. It was, a, it was a landscape plant, honestly. And if you could keep them going in succession and start planting them when they're about eight inches tall, and as the one was coming to fruition, pull it out of your landscape and replace it, uh, I, I think it would be a beautiful landscaping plant, just that red color. But once it got to a certain height, it started to put seeds on I'm like, well, let's see how many seeds I can get. And I got a Ziploc bag full of seeds off of uh, two plants. And I didn't even harvest them. I got to where I was like, God, this is too, I just stripped it off and went, okay, that's enough. I got plenty. And now that I'm putting them into the seed exchange, I wish I would have got more. But I'll get more this year. 
So that's a, that's a plant that generally I don't think people think about saving seed for, but it's so easy to do. And you can also, what I call, save seed by harvesting seed. So if you want to grow lamb's quarters on your own property, well, it's pretty easy to go out in the wild and find wild-growing lamb's quarter and go out and harvest that seed when that goes to, to seed. You don't have to do anything other than go out there and get it. And many of your herbs produce a tremendous amount of seed uh, that's easily uh, reseeded. I grow basil on the side of my house. Every year the plants get big, they get flowers, they bring in all kinds of bees. There's all these little crusty seed heads. And I go and I strip a bunch of them off and I put them in a bag and I strip a bunch of them off and I throw them on the ground. And every year at least a few make it in springtime and, and, and start growing back. Every year. And I throw some extra seed on top of it that I've taken care of. And one way or another I get basil every single year. I haven't bought a basil seed or a basil plant in years. Uh, other than a little bit of boxwood basil I just bought because it's a different variety. And uh, I'll never buy boxwood basil seed now. When, those, when these plants go to seed, I'll harvest the seed. Um, comfrey seed is very easy to harvest. Uh, calendula is, is really easy to harvest the seeds. Uh, marigold, really easy to harvest the seeds. So flowers and, and ornamentals, not just uh, edibles. California poppy, pretty easy to harvest seeds from. There's a tremendous diversity out there, and if you're growing a lot of the unusuals that I'm talking about, find out what their life cycle is and, and save seeds from them as well. Let's talk a little bit about saving or storing your seeds once they're harvested. I think in an ideal situation, you put all your seeds in a little uh, vacuum seal bags, label the date of harvest and what they are and what the strain is, and vacuum seal. I think that's probably the best thing that you can do. It's not really expensive if you already own a vacuum sealer to do that. And it also will put the seeds into nice little tight packets that will store in a box very, very well. But there's a lot of ways to do it. Generally speaking, I'm not that... Um, religious about the way I save my seeds, especially saving them from one season to the next. And you guys, with my growing season, I might be harvesting seed in November, right, and I'm planting it in March. So, I mean, it's only being saved for four months, where if you're harvesting seed in June and you're not going to be planting it till March, there's a lot longer of a process and a lot more potential for damage to happen to your seeds. But if you vacuum seal seeds, I guarantee you get three years good germination rates out of them. And uh, germination rates are important. And what happens is you save seed is germination doesn't stop, but it, the germination rate goes down. So you might have a plant with an 85% germination rate its first year of saved seed. That's actually not even that good. A lot of plants are 90-plus uh, germination rate. But if you save it for two seasons before you plant it, the germination rate might drop down to 60% or 65% or 70%. Save it for three, and you might go below 50 Save it for four, you might go down to 30%. But here's an interesting thing. There's more ways than one to pass on a trade. If I save seed for four years, and I get a 40 or 30% germination rate, and I grow those plants, and I harvest seed from them, and I save that seed for four years, right? And then I plant it again, and I get a little bit better of a germination rate at four years than I did the first time, that tells me, and now this took eight years to do, but that tells me that I'm passing along the ability of the seed to survive long term. And every time I do that, I'm creating seed that actually stores longer. And, and that's kind of some of the good segue into some of the things that I want to talk about today toward the end. But before I get into breeding for traits, I, I want to uh, finish up on how to handle your, your stored seeds. 
I don't care if you put them in little, like, pill bottles. I don't care if you put them in film containers, uh, which I wouldn't do because you can have chemical residue from the film that might harm your seeds, uh, but something along that size. The Ziploc bags, uh, vacuum sealed. I don't care what you do with your seeds to protect them, but the best rules are keep them dry, keep them cool, and keep them out of light. If you do that, you're going to have good success with your safe seeds. The next rule with your seeds is always label what they are when they were harvested. If you don't do that and you save a lot of seed, you're going to lose track of things really, really easily. Um, and we've gone as far as I have some fire boxes in the house for our valuable papers and uh, some cash and, and you know some of our other things we don't want to lose. I've taken some of my seeds and put them in the fire box because I know that they'll be safe in there. You won't even lose them in a fire. So there's, you know, there is a value there that I want you to understand, and it's worth protecting, and it's worth at least being organized with. So please consider doing that with your seeds, because it will allow you to plant them, and it will also allow you, let's say you've been saving seeds for a while, you should always use your, your oldest seed first, and, and just sow more than you think you need, so that you keep the freshest seed available if you have a failure. So if I had, let's say, um, I don't know, tomatoes from two seasons ago and from one season ago. And I planted my tomatoes from two seasons ago, and I used up most of my seed stock from that. And I put my tomatoes out, and maybe something happened. I got a disease or something. I wanted to still try to get some tomatoes in the second part of the season. Now I have some reserve seed to plant, and it's fresher seed. So make sure that you're, you're thinking that way as well. And you're going to find, if you start saving seed, you're going to save way more seed than you could ever grow. You think about one tomato producing between 100 and 200 seeds. I, I can't imagine growing 200 tomato plants. I, I really can't. And since I want diversity in my seeds, I'm going to save the best tomato from my four best plants this year, and I'm going to end up with 800-plus tomato seeds. So exchange, right? Swap seeds, www.heirloomseedswap.com. That's Johnny's thing. Uh, get over there today, sign up, and, and exchange your seeds. Even if you don't have seeds to, to exchange, see what's listed and, and contact the lister and see, will you take a couple bucks for some seeds? Will you take a silver dime for some seeds? What have you. And also consider picking up some seeds in quantity, maybe from a local hardware store and listing those. Let's help them get this thing off the ground. Um, I also wanted to talk to you about growing your own hybrids. Hybrids aren't always bad, uh, but you don't know what the results are going to be, so I believe in, in starting small. I think we can come up with some pretty cool squashes with hybridization. I think if we think about squashes that are similar to begin with, and if we only grow a few seeds and a few plants and see what the results are, if they're good, then we have a new hybrid variety. Now we take another generation, put it together on purpose, and see if it continues to be a good variety. If it sucks, oh, well, we gave up a little bit of space to try something. But I think creating your own hybrids can be kind of cool. I especially think that there's some potential to do it with peppers and tomatoes because they don't readily cross-pollinate. So if you manually do it, you have a pretty good handle on what's occurred. Uh, so I think those are some things maybe we can look into. Uh, I'm not real wild about it. I, I've only actually ever done it once with squash, and my results were not that good. Uh, and I probably won't mess with it here on my little place. But when I move, I think I'll try a little bit more of, uh, of self-imposed hybridization just to see what the results are. Remember, they're not always bad. Some of our best heirlooms started out as a, a particular type of hybrid. Um, 
on hand pollinating, I've kind of talked about this already, but I want to make sure that people understand that it's not a difficult process. I've seen people do it with feathers. I've seen people do it with paintbrushes. I've always just found it easier if it's a male-female flower thing to remove the male flower and bring it over and just push the pistils and stamens together. I've always done that. It's never not worked. It's never been a problem. And if you're if you're cross you're pollinating something that has a, a whole flower, you know, where it's the, the flower self-fertile, uh, you could do the same thing. You just you know, the few blossoms that you pull off of one plant won't be producing fruit for you, but you still get the same effect. Uh, I'll also tell you with tomatoes and peppers, there's a spray called set, a set spray. And it helps the plant set, uh, set uh, fruit a little bit better. And it's not really anything it does to pollinate, but you spray the blossoms and the stems holding the blossoms, and it provides some nutrients that encourage them to fruit heavily. And that's probably worth doing as well. And I think you'll end up with better results if you do. It was something we always did with our tomatoes in Pennsylvania. Um, let's talk a bit now about regionally, regional adaptation. There's two ways to preserve traits in seeds, and one is to try to be completely and totally pure. That's where we're worried about passing on only the traits that a rattlesnake pole bean is known for, right? Flavor, color, texture, size, all of those things. And we want to be very careful that there's no cross-pollination. We want to be very careful the time we plant, the time we harvest, and what we harvest, and harvesting selective, not harvesting selectively. We want to harvest from every plant and, you know, uh, get seeds from every plant, combine them to get a mixed genetic trait, that type of thing, and try to preserve a uniformity of that particular variety. Whereas, I might plant a particular variety of bean here in Texas. Some of my vines might do really, really well, and some of them might not do as well. On those vines that do really, really well, I might get some beans that are really, really big, bigger than normal. Uh, because maybe my climate was better than the place the seeds were originally produced for that particular variety. And the flowers on that vine that had the most genetic potential realized it. Now, I still don't want to pick the seeds from a single plant. I still want more than one plant. But I might go through and instead of making sure I pick a little bit from every plant, I might pick only four plants, and I'll pick only the very largest beans off of those plants. I can do this the other way. If I want a, a vine that doesn't grow as tall... I can take all the vines that don't grow as tall but seem to do well and harvest from them, and I'll produce a more compact vine over subsequent generations. Uh, Johnny was even talking about with tomatoes. If you pick the tomato plant uh, that bears the earliest and save the first fruit and do that for a couple seasons, you end up with a tomato that's an earlier variety. You can do it with a later variety. You can do it for color, size, texture, taste, flavor, disease resistance, drought tolerance. Maybe you take a particular patch of beans and you only water them at half the rate that you should. And you find that they all die and you failed. Fine. Maybe you try this with a different variety of bean. And maybe only 20% of the bean plants do well with that reduced watering uh, capacity. But you take those and you save those seeds and you do the same thing with the next generation. And you do that for three or four generations, and now you've developed a somewhat drought-tolerant strain of that particular bean. Now, I'm not saying beans are a good thing to do this with. I'm just giving you examples. The reality is we really have no idea what the potential is for various plants throughout our, our country because this type of work is not really being done uh, by the individual backyard gardener anymore, any longer. And when you start saving seed is the only way that this can occur. 
You can't do this if you go buy new seeds every year. It's impossible because you're getting the traits that were handed down through that seed line from wherever that seed was produced. When you grow something in your backyard and you save seed from your backyard and put it back there again and again and again, and by the time you get to the, like a fourth generation, that plant is, is, is so adapted to your environment, it's unbelievable. It's really amazing how fast that actually occurs and how you begin to produce something that is every bit as good of quality as the original seed strain uh, produced, but it's maybe just a little bit different. Maybe it's a little bit larger. Maybe it's a little bit smaller. Maybe it's a little bit juicier. Maybe it's a little bit thicker. Maybe the color's a little different. It doesn't matter, but what has happened is some of your plants don't thrive. Some of them even die. And the ones that survive are the ones that are following evolutionary pathways. They are best adapted to your environment. And every time a genetic diversity uh, trait is, is, is uh, observed that further enhances the survivability and productivity, and that is selectively harvested for seed into the next generation, you get something that's even better adapted. And eventually you re reach a point where you have a perfectly adapted seed strain for your environment. But again, that never happens without saving your seeds. And it really isn't that hard. All it takes is the power of observation. It's really easy to go out and look at three tomato vines and go, that one's bigger, fuller, and producing more fruit than the other two. It's really easy to sit down and, and cut three tomatoes and taste each one and go, this one has more flavor. This one's juicier. This one's sweeter, even though they kind of all look the same. And say, okay, this is my healthiest vine that produces my tastiest fruit and save seeds from that plant and maybe one other plant uh, for that season. It's really easy to go out and look at peppers and go, these guys are just not really thriving. And these ones over here, they're doing really well. And I think if you kind of limit your diversity, it's like you can only do a few species of each plant. Don't try to grow 500 uh, varieties of pepper. Uh, you won't have a lot of problems with cross-pollination with a lot of things. And if you use what's called an island approach, that's another thing I really didn't talk about today. But if instead of growing all your garden just clumped together, if you space it out, over your, you know, your primary zone in your property, your zone one, and little clumps and islands and little round offshoots, and you know, put peppers in with your flowers, right? So that that pretty border of petunias and pansies and crap that your wife planted, guys, go in there and put a couple pepper plants in there. Uh, if you put something in there like a marble or a sweet pickle or something like that, that produces a bunch of different colored peppers or fish peppers are another cool thing to put in there. It, it'll look pretty. It'll look just like it belongs there. Once it, you, know, you have a gr pretty green plant, then you have pretty white flowers, and then you have all these different colors of pepper adding color to it, especially later in the season as the flowers wane, it becomes a showpiece. So and by doing that, you create separation, you create pockets of isolation, and you mitigate cross-pollination. You don't completely prevent it. But again, I don't think it's that big a deal Unless you're growing, like, corn. Cross-pollination with corn is a huge problem. You really have to make sure you do everything you can to isolate your... You cannot grow two varieties of open-pollinated corn in your own yard at the same time without cross-pollination. You're probably going to get some corn cross-pollination. But what you can do, plant corn, let it grow for four weeks, plant a second field of corn, a later variety of corn, and let it grow for four... four you know, let it grow. And by the time the second one is, is ready to be pollinated, it's pollinating itself because the other one has already lost all its pollen and it's already producing ears for you. So there's always a way around it, and it really isn't worth stressing over that much. 
Corn, though, I'm going to leave you with this on corn. Do not ever harvest um, your corn seed from only one plant. It's real tempting because then we have to let that cob sit on the, the plant until it dries out. What you'll want to do is pick, let's say, five of your best corn plants. And you can even harvest one ear off them to eat. Usually you get two ears of corn per plant. Some species produce a little bit more, but generally you get two. So you can even harvest one ear and let the other ear stay on there until that corn gets good and hard and can be kind of husked off. And uh, do your seed saving that way with corn. It's one of the things that if you harvest from one plant, you real, really quick kind of narrow the gene pool down and start to get poor results. Four to five plants will generally do fairly well for you. You'd be better off doing 12, though. And you would also be, one of the things I've found to really kind of beef up corn is if you're going to, let's say, grow triple play sweet corn, it's a great old heirloom open pollinated corn, uh, you might get some from Seeds of Change and you might get some from Seed Savers Exchange, right? Or you might get some from high mowing and some from, get two packets from two different places and, and pa- plant half of each. And that will ensure some genetic diversity there, and it will get you off to a great start. And uh, it's probably not a bad little extra step to take with something like corn. Uh, and that's about it for today. But I, I want you to realize here what we're talking about again. Again, so I know sometimes I sound like Her- Harold Garrett, the dirt doctor, or, you know, uh, you know, a farmer or something. And I talk more about feeding ourselves with uh, stuff we grow than how to prepare for a disaster. But... Again, my show's about living that better life if times get tough, and even when they do not. Taking preparedness steps to make sure that we're prepared for hard times, disasters, and what have you, but always taking steps that make our life better today, even if nothing goes wrong, so that we don't waste our resources, and we don't turn away from the, you know, the great things that are out there in the world. There's some really awesome, beautiful things about our modern world. And if we don't live a po- in a positive way, we miss out on those while we're waiting for doomsday. That's not the way I want to live, and that's never how I wanted my show to be. The other thing is I absolutely believe that the most fundamental thing that humans need to know how to do that we've lost is how to feed ourselves. A hundred years ago, almost every human being out there knew relatively how to feed themselves in a variety of ways. Today, there are people on the street that if you gave them everything they needed to feed themselves but didn't have somebody to do the work for them, would sit around and starve. Even if they decided to try, they would try and fail because they just don't have the skills anymore. These things take time. Your first garden will not be great. I'm going to tell you right now, if you're a first-year gardener this year, you're going to have some successes and failures, but it's not going to be an amazing garden. It's going to have some frustrations and some things that you're going to learn not to do again. And your second-year garden will be better but it still won't be great. It'll take three, four years to really get uh, good. But if you're saving seeds for those three or four years, by the time your skill levels come up, you've also got seeds that have adapted to your region and to your early incompetence, which is cool. That means they're very, very resistant seeds. You'll start to learn what grows well in your area. Reach out and talk to other people in your area. What are you growing? What varieties and why? What have you tried to grow and have failed at? You know, and occasionally I'll find out something somebody's failed at, and I'll be like, I'm going to grow it. Sometimes I pull it off, and sometimes there's a reason everybody else failed. But it's fun, and it, it really does impact your life in a positive way to have 
things around you growing. And remember, don't just focus on saving seeds and annuals. Focus on planting those perennials as well, those fruit trees, those vines, those bushes, those shrubs, those hedges, those things that come back and produce for you year after year after year. When you combine those two, you have to do less work. And one more time I'm going to ask you, do me a favor today. Go over to www.heirloomseedswap.com, set up an account there, see what's listed, try to list something. Right, and you've got something laying around, some extra seeds laying around somewhere. List them. Let's get that thing populated. Let's get it going. I really admire the initiative that Johnny and the Queen took uh, to get this site up. It's well done. It's well put together, um, and uh, it's running on some pretty decent software because it was pretty easy, like I said, to set up an account and get it going. If Johnny will just approve my ad, come on, man, I'm not a spammer. And uh, let's see if we can get that site up and running, and let's see if we can start. You know, another group of people exchanging seeds. I know it's not the only one out there. I know there's other ones out there uh, that do it. But the more groups that are swapping seeds, the more diversity in seed swapping, and the uh, the less dependence we ever end up with on a single organization, and the less of a target any single organization becomes. If you have anything that's a monopoly, it's a problem. I mean, I mean that. Anything that's a monopoly is a problem. That's why I have such a problem with Monsanto. They have too much control over the four primary food crops that are grown in the world today. And when one person has too much control, not only do they prevent a we present a weakness, they also have a propensity um, to abuse that power. So I am big on having lots of little groups doing something rather than one big group doing it because it makes everything better, more diverse, and more powerful. And I'll tell you, there are people uh, in industry and there are some people in government that really don't like this whole backyard gardening movement. Uh, don't be fooled by Michelle Obama's garden. Uh, the government does not want its population self-sufficient. Feeding yourself makes you self-sufficient. I'll leave you today with the words of Jules Gervais. Growing food might be the most dangerous occupation on the planet because when you grow your own food, danger of becoming free. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. It makes you wonder where you went. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.